And so in all things, whether they be spoken words or lived out acts, to him, to God, be the glory forever. We, we will, I love this forever. You know, we, <laughs> some people observe church and they think, man, they just do the same thing every week. Man, they come, they sing, and they, you know, over the course of the year, they sing some of the same songs. And he gets up there, those pastors get up there, and they say kind of the same thing, you know, different, same song, different verse. <laughs> And like, when are they going to be done? We are never going to be done <laughs> praising God forever and ever and ever and ever. We will be captured with the glory of His greatness. And never, never bored. You can take your Bible and open it to the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 11 will be the focus of our study today. The title of this study, looking at the last couple, few verses of Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, is, Oh, the depths, celebrating the unfathomable mind of God. There's a picture on the screen there of a man who looks a little bit worried. <laughs> and uh, uh, yes, considering what he's about to do, he, uh, I found a website years ago that I found fascinating, and, and when you hear this, you're not going to be all that fascinated, but uh, I'm a little nerdy when it comes to language. It's called phobialist.com, and it's an alphabetic list of most of the phobias that have been given names. There's common ones like acrophobia, a fear of heights, arachnophobia, a fear of spiders, bacteriophobia, a fear of bacteria, and claustrophobia, a fear of claustros, no, a fear of closets, confined spaces. Uh, and then there's some peculiar ones like phallocrophobia, the fear of becoming bald. <laughs> and then palatophobia, the fear of bald people. <laughs> Would you believe there's one called cyclophobia, a fear of bicycles. And then there's neophobia, the fear of anything new. I think maybe the most common fear of all, and it doesn't actually have a, a, an official name, believe it or not, is the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? I, I think we can all identify with that to one degree or another. We might wonder even what God is doing or what he's going to do to us or with us in the future for our own families. We might wonder how is he going to lead us through whatever it is we're going through? How is he going to provide for us? What is he going to call upon us to do? What might he call upon us to suffer? We don't know. But we don't need to worry about unknown things. Because the good news is that there is nothing that is unknown to God. He has a plan for the ages. And if he can plan out the ages, <laughs> he can certainly plan out your life and mine. Today, we're going to discuss some things that we don't know. I'm going to tell you things I know about things we don't know about God. And we're going to find that to be a source of joy. Talking about things I don't know about. Now, let me say that we're not talking about a celebration of ignorance no, we're going to be celebrating the superior mind of God and His plan. So our study today is going to see how our inability to fathom fully the depths of God's mind 
should lead us to rejoice that he has a masterful plan for the ages. Now, we've come to the book of Romans, and I'm going to spend two or three minutes just giving you the layout. What, you know, when, when I do a stand-alone message like this, sort of what we're doing is we're parachuting into a text. So I, I want to give you a sense of the geography around the verses that we're going to look at. The book of Romans was not written as a textbook. It was written as a pastoral letter, an apostolic letter to a church that was very good and mature in many ways, but was having some problems. And the biggest problems were that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the church were kind of suspicious of each other. And we can tell this when you get to the end of the book and the practical matters that Paul is addressing. Here, here's the historical backdrop. The church was started in the 30s or 40s with Jewish Christians. Gentile Christians joined in over the years. And then Emperor Claudius did something in AD 49 that impacted the church. Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And it didn't matter if they were Christian Jews or non-Christian Jews, all of them had to go. So that meant for a period of about five or six years, the church at Rome was entirely made of Gentiles. Nero comes to the throne, and one of the first things he does is reverse that edict of Claudius. So Jews come back to Rome. And Jewish Christians come back to the Roman church. It's a little different than it was. You know, those potlucks weren't kosher anymore. They're, the primary food that the Romans ate, favorite foods were pork and shellfish. <laughs> this is a problem if you're trying to maintain your Jewish identity. So it seems like what's happening is the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, they're, they're around each other, but they're kind of keeping to themselves. So this whole letter to the Romans is written by Paul to help them understand what they share in common in the gospel. You know, they, they both have the, the same problems. I mean, the first 11 chapters is, is theology, meaty theology. And he, he tells them in chapters 1 to 3 that Jew and Gentile have a common problem. That's sin and coming under the judgment of God. All have sinned, whether Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chap, the middle of chapter 3 into chapter 5, he tells them, that there's a single solution for everyone, whether they're Jew or Gentile, and that is the justification that God makes available through faith in Jesus. In chapters 6 through 8, he tells them that they have a shared holiness, that the way for them to grow in godliness as Christians is the same whether they're Jew or Gentile Christians. And then in verse, chapters 9 to 11, he explains in what seems like a detour that, but isn't really, that God has had a sovereign plan for, for Israel all along. God had chosen Israel to be the vehicle through which his light and his life would come through the world, through which Messiah would come. Knowing full well that they were an undeserving people and were stiff-necked and hard-hearted and would reject Messiah. And God in his sovereignty is using their rejection of Messiah as an, an open door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Who, who would have imagined that it would happen that way? When you read the prophets going, looking back, you can see hints of that, but no one would have guessed that this is the way it was going to play out. And it's right after talking about that that Paul bursts forth in praise at the end of chapter 11. The portion today we're looking at at the end of chapter 11 is the end of a doctrinal section about how God had chosen Israel to be the source of revelation and redemption in the world. 
and thinking about how God unexpectedly had now turned into the Gentiles and sent people like Paul to go to Gentiles, uh, Paul erupts in praise. And I want us to read now verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is staggered at what God has been doing. You know, if you were to have asked Paul 20 years earlier, could you imagine that you're going to be running around the Roman Empire telling Gentiles how they can receive salvation through the Jewish Messiah? He would have thought it was the most absurd thing ever. But the light shined on him, and the Lord revealed to him this mystery, the church, this plan not foretold in ages past. And he becomes an ambassador of Christ. And as Paul thinks about how God has planned all of that, it causes him to stagger in wonder. Hidden in the great mysteries of God is a goodness which our minds cannot fully comprehend. Our inability to fathom fully the depths of God's mind shouldn't lead us to despair. It should lead us to rejoice that God has a masterful plan for the ages. Let me give you a preview of what we're going to see in these several verses. We'll see, firstly, exclamations about God's infinity. We're going to see questions about our inability. And lastly, a celebration of God's glory. Let's come to the first of those in verse 33. Exclamations. These are shout-outs about God's infinity. Uh, and there are really two exclamations that are made in verse 33. The first one at the beginning of verse 33 is about God's resources being unfathomable. Now, forgive the $60 word, unfathomable. That means you can't, you can't get down to the bottom of it. You can't figure out its dimensions. The verse says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Depth. Let's talk about what this means, what kind of depth is meant here. Now, it, it starts off with this word, oh. Now, in the Greek text, the word is literally, oh. <laughs> that is the word. It's the sound of gasp and wonderment. The only time in the New Testament is used to begin a sentence, making this one of the more emotional verses in the New Testament. But not a, not a thoughtless emotion at all. Not, uh, it's driven by the stretching of the mind that is lost in wonder at what God is doing. You know, in worship, our emotions ought to be grounded in thoughts that are on fire with God's truth. It's not just a matter of agreeing through things. There, there ought to be a, something that resonates within us that our whole being celebrates the goodness of God. Oh, the depths, Paul says, the depths. Uh, the Greek word uh, is 
I, I don't like to use, throw out a lot of Greek words, but the word is bathos. Sounds like bath, doesn't it? Bathos. It's a, a word used to describe depths, whether they be ocean depths or deep canyons, abysses. Uh, in fact, uh, it used to be that the old uh, exploratory submarines that were sent down into the abysses were called bathospheres. There's a picture of one on the screen. And we send things down into the depths because we want to know what's there. We want to measure them. We're, we are people who love to measure things. In fact, uh, some cultures are really into this. My wife and I were watching a documentary little snippet this week about uh, how to make small talk in German, which is funny because neither of us really speak German. But, uh, you know, in, in English we say, hey, how are you? And we don't really care. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're, just, we're just sort of filling the air. And people in Germany, when you do that, are sort of baffled that you don't want to listen to what they have to say. But they have their own small talk, and their small talk is, well, how long did it take you to get here? And, and you need to tell them exactly how long it took and how many miles it was and which, freeway, which road exits you took and what the price of gasoline is down to the euro cent, uh, a love of measurement. We want to know how high things are, how wide they are, how deep they are, and we create all sorts of measurements of uh, instruments of measurement. I, I'm always uh, humored by the humorist uh, Samuel Clemens, uh, who uh, his pen name was Mark Twain a name that he got from watching the Mississippi River boats. They had these measurement sticks to figure out when they came within, when the water was only two fathoms deep, two fathoms deep, they would shout, Mark Twain, meaning there's just two, now don't go any closer to shore. He thought that was so neat, he picked that up as his name. There are many things that we can measure, and we're getting better at it all the time. We've just sent this satellite to Mars, and it's about to send off the first helicopter flight on another planet. It's supposed to happen tomorrow and intricate measurements. And yet, with all of our abilities to measure things now, there are still things that defy our ability to do it. And when we think about the knowledge of God and what He's revealed, we come into a realm that we do not have the instruments to fully measure. Throughout the chapters before this, Paul has been scaling the heights of God's truth, and seeing vast uh, displays of the grandeur of God's plan of salvation, and now he's going to go down into the depths of God's truth. As he contemplates depths beyond measurement, he gasps in amazement. Oh, the depths, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The, the, the way I, I put up on the screen what I think is a little bit more accurate translation because there's no word both there. It is literally, oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Three things he mentions. The riches, which actually the Greek text is, one, is a singular word, which could be rendered wealth. Oh, the wealth, the depth of the wealth, and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Well, that raises the question, what kind of wealth are we talking about here? This is not about financial prosperity, of course. This term for riches or wealth is something that Paul has used throughout the book of Romans. And I put on the screen just a few of the verses. I, I'm going to read phrases from them. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. The kindness of God that leads you to repentance. In chapter 9, verse 23, he speaks about how 
he did so, God did so, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That is, there were people who were receiving his mercy, and it was a glorious mercy. It was a wealth of mercy and glory. Chapter 10, verse 12 is another time he uses it. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. So based on the way Paul has used this word repeatedly, and there were other references I didn't read to you from Romans, it would seem that what he is speaking of here is the riches, the wealth of God's kindness and mercy, his grace, growing out of his character, growing out of and demonstrated in the work that he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, it really does not matter how physically wealthy you are, what your retirement account looks like, your bank account looks like, what your physical assets are. If you are poor and your experience of God's mercy, you are to be pitied. We must have the riches of God's grace or we are paupers. And it matters relatively little what else we have. Paul, thinking about God's plan for the ages and bringing Jew and Gentiles to himself in Jesus, he gasps that there is a richness of mercy there, the depths of which he cannot plumb. Consider with me the the next thing he talks about, wisdom. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. What kind of wisdom is he speaking about here? This is that aspect of God's mind that informs all of his decisions and his actions. It's his ability to to carry through, uh, to conceive of a plan and carry it through to the end. Sometimes we think up plans, we make a course of action, we think it's going to work, and then we get going like, well, no, this is not going to work. God's plans are not thwarted like that. He's able to conceive and finish the perfect plan for all the ages. And this would include things like how Israel had been given their Messiah and they turned away from him and yet God has a plan for that rejection to lead to others receiving Christ and in the end still bring Israel back into no salvation. There's wisdom there. Wisdom is more than smarts. You know, there are smart people who have a lot of information but they're not very wise. Knowing facts is not the same thing as having wisdom. Because sometimes with all the facts we have, we can't make sense of them. Not so with God Almighty, who has a plan for the ages, a plan that includes you and me who are in Jesus Christ. Related to this is the knowledge he speaks of. What kind of knowledge is this? Oh, the depth of the knowledge. Again, this is more than just obtaining information about things. It's the arranging of things in an intelligent way. He not only... God not only knows everything, he's able to understand and arrange things in a master plan. Paul is just amazed at what God can do. He would never have thought that Messiah's plan for the world would roll out the way that it had. And it rolled out in a way, unexpectedly, and yet still not, it doesn't erase any of the promises that were made in ages past. Those will still be fulfilled But there's this time of wonder and joy as the gospel is going out to the nations before Jesus comes. So the first part of verse 33, this first exclamation about God's infinity, this limitless mind that he has, 
is that God's resources are unfathomable, unfa- uh, unlimited in the, the depth of His of His mercy, the riches of His mercy, and the wisdom and the knowledge that brings about His plan. Now, the end of verse 33 is another gasp about how God's decisions are extraordinary. God's decisions are extraordinary. He says at the end, in the middle of verse 33, how unsearchable are His judgments. His judgments. Now, judgments here does not mean punishments. Sometimes the word judgment does mean that, but other times, like here, it means his decisions, his determinations. It's like the way Psalm 19 speaks about the Word of God, that the judgments of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That is the things that God has determined to do and revealed to us in his Word. They are right. Examples of this would be his determination to send his Son into the world as the Savior. That's the judgment of God, a decision of God. God's choosing Israel as the vehicle through which His light would come into the world. God's choosing to save pagan people, Gentile people who didn't give a thought about God before, to bring them into the light and life of Jesus. That's His decision, His judgment. His his decision to bring Israel back to Himself at the end of the age. These are His judgments. They are unsearchable. They they can't be fully comprehended. Oh, we can see the points uh, of his decisions, but how God decided to get from point A to B to C, we would never have thought of that. It's mind-boggling. Not in a bad way, in a profound way. You know, sometimes there are people who make really dumb decisions and we marvel at it. (laughs) And we think, what on earth were they thinking? That's not the kind of wonder here. That, this, this is a, a, a mind-boggling that God would so masterfully do all of this. God's decisions have a depth of understanding to them that are deeper than our ability to fathom because He sees things we can't see. He knows things we can't know, and He plans things better than we ever would. And that is true on the grand scale and the plan of the ages, and that is true on the small scale and you as a subject of His kingdom. God's way is better, even if it's not what you might imagine or even choose. There's one more exclamation about God's infinity here at the end of verse 33, uh, about how sometimes God's actions are invisible. It says at the end of verse 33, and how unfathomable are his ways. How unfathomable are his ways. Or the New King James puts it this way, his ways are past finding out. Now, there are certain things that God does that we clearly see. We, we see it in the pages of the Bible. You can see it in the pages of history, things that he has clearly done. But there are other things that God does behind the scenes that we have no knowledge of. God setting up events to work out just the way that He intends. It's, it's unfathomable. It's the, the, the Greek word here is literally untraceable. Untraceable. It's used, uh, a, a word used to describe if you're trying to track somebody down by looking for fingerprint, uh, fingerprints, footprints, or maybe uh, the, the wagon trails of a caravan. You would try to trace them. Well, sometimes people move around and they're untraceable. 
that's the idea here. In the Old West, if you were trying to find someone, you might hire a Native American tracker. And they were better at tracking than many of the, the whites who moved west, but sometimes they couldn't find what you were looking for. Today, when our law enforcement is looking for uh, terrorists and other things like that, the federal agents look for trails, digital trails, and, and what have you, and sometimes they find them, and other times it's elusive. They all leave a footprint somewhere, and time will reveal it, but when it comes to tracking all the paths of God, there is no way for us to fully account for everything that God is doing. It doesn't matter how big your stack of theology books are, that will never exhaust our knowledge of God. God has, alone has an infinite mind. Our, our minds are confined. We can only get so much into there. We can only connect so much. We can know enough. We can have a sufficient knowledge of God, but we will never have an exhaustive knowledge of God because we're not God. We don't have that mind. And we're left to stagger and wonder at his ability to, do, to piece things together in ways that we cannot. God's plan takes us down paths that we would have never guessed. I shared earlier how shocked Paul had to be as he looked back over his life to think that he, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, would be having dinner with Gentiles all around the world and celebrating their common life in Jesus. Now, now please don't take what I've said about our inability to know everything the wrong way. You can go too far in the wrong direction with that thought. Don't take that to mean that you can't be certain about anything about God. Um, you know, sometimes this notion, well, God is much bigger than our understanding, is then stretched out like elastic to mean, and, well, yes, we believe in Jesus, but people who believe in Buddha, God is present there, and they know him in a different way. Or God is blessing Islam and, you know, because they know God in a different way. Or God is even guiding the atheists of the world. Uh, they just don't, they're ignorant of him or, well, they might even put it that way. That doesn't sound nice, does it? But uh, all of those ideas, no matter how nice they try to make them, are not biblical. They do not fit with what God has revealed. There is only one Lord and Master, our Lord Jesus Christ. God reveals points of revelation to us, but he does not always connect the lines between those points. And it's the, it's the lines that connect that sometimes baffle us how, how it all works out in the beautiful, marvelous way that it does. But God has left us enough of his path for us to follow. And this, uh, our not knowing everything about uh, how everything will take place should not be a cause of fear but a cause of celebration. Let me give you a, a, a simple example. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And once he comes, there are a sequence of events that we know are going to take place, but we simply do not know when he is coming again. And sometimes we look at the things which are destined to happen and we think, I don't, how, how is that going to happen? And we, and we might guess, we might see some trends and think, well, I could see how some of that might, but we are not going to sketch out how it's all going to take place up until that point. God knows. He, he, he's not lost in a cloud. Oh, I don't know when to send my son back. <laughs> no, he has a master plan. And that should be a cause of celebration, that God is at work with a plan beyond what we could ever think of.
So this verse has a few exclamations, a few shout-outs about God's infinity. Now Paul continues in verses 34 and 35 with a couple questions. Questions about our inability. Uh, Look with me at these two verses. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Three questions there, aren't there? Paul is continuing to speak about the uh, infinity of God, but it's, it's done now in a way that highlights the fact that there's things we can't contribute to him. And what Paul does here is loosely quote from two Old Testament passages, one from the book of Isaiah and one from the book of Job. He asks here rhetorical questions, so that means please don't shout out the answer. (laughs) The answer to these questions is no one. Uh, But these rhetorical questions are asked to make us think about why that is true. Each of these questions takes up three areas of the depth, the depths of God. Earlier we talked about, oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge. Now, these three questions are going to take those in reverse order, the knowledge and the wisdom and the wealth. The first one is in verse 34, the beginning of verse 34. Who can comprehend God's mind? Look how verse 34 reads, for who has known the mind of the Lord? See, that connects to that, oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, Paul is quoting here from the book of Isaiah. And keep your place here in Romans 11 and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Isaiah 40. This this chapter was sort of like a miniature gospel to the Jews of the Old Testament era. Uh, Isaiah wrote it for Jews who were going to go away into captivity. And the good news was God was not done with them. God was going to bring them out of captivity. In fact, God was going to bring him into the glory of his light and Messiah would come. And I'm sure as Jews in Babylon would think about verses like this, they would think, oh, come on. <laughs> How? <laughs> yeah, right. We're going to be the center of the world again. We're gonna, the light of God's plan is going to shine from us. Look at it. We don't even have a land anymore. We don't have a temple anymore. And so Isaiah, um, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to reason with them that they can't figure it out, but he's going to do it. Uh, I want you to look with me at chapter 40, verse 12, where the Lord asked them, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The, the thought is, I have, you haven't. And marked off the heavens with a span. I can measure all of the sky with the width of my fingers. You can't do that. Who has calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? You haven't, but I have. And then verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? That's the verse that Paul is loosely quoting here back in Romans 11. God is telling Israel, I know things you don't know. I have abilities you don't have. And you're going to counsel me? You're going to tell me this can't be done? I mean, since when does the Lord need informants? (laughs) 
So this is a verse about man's inability to offer to God some missing piece. No one is able to do things so creatively and as wonderfully as God. No one is able to arrange things so amazingly as God can. And what was true in creation and his ability to know the whole world that way is also true in salvation. God can do it. There's nothing he doesn't know. Who has known the mind of the Lord? There's no one who knows any more than he does. In fact, we all know far less. Who can comprehend God's mind? Paul quotes from the rest of this verse in Romans 11. Who can inform God's decisions? Now we're talking about the wisdom of God. Uh, Paul, the way Paul words it, who became his counselor? <laughs> Which of you has the job of being God's advisor? This again is a loose quotation from here in Isaiah 40. Now, please, when you see this word counselor, don't think of a therapist. This is not a shrink or a life coach. In fact, in the Bible, it never means that. Yeah, you know, it's good to seek counsel when we need it, and there is, uh, there is wise biblical counsel to be sought and to be had. Um, but that's not the sort of counsel that's in view. We're talking about here like a governmental advisor. We recently had a new president sworn in, and part of the transition and the change of power is the approval of new cabinet members. Every president needs a cabinet, advisors. There are so many decisions, so many departments, so many fine points that no one person can do it, and so they assemble a team together. And in ancient days, there were similarities that kings, who, who had way more power than presidents do, would assemble around them advisors, one of whom would be their right-hand man, to speak into their ear of what they ought to do. Well, you know what? God is not like one of those kings. God needs no cabinet. He needs no advisor, and he certainly doesn't need any advice from you or me. He is his own counselor. This is actually the language that's used about the Messiah as well in Isaiah 9, verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Literally, a wonder of a counselor. Now, he, he's a king, and yet he's, he's his own counselor. <laughs> he doesn't need anyone to tell him, you know, I really shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do it. No, no, no. He doesn't need it. And so also with God the Father. He needs no counselor in his glorious plan of the ages. You know, human counselors make mistakes. You go through the pages of the Old Testament, you find there are advisors of the kings that said some pretty stupid things and got kings in trouble. They're not infallible or all-knowing. But there is one ruler who is perfectly able to rule completely on his own. He is the king of the universe. And there is no one like our God and his Christ, his anointed ruler, Jesus In a moment, we're going to see how Paul is going to quote from the book of Job. And I want us to think a little bit about some of Job struggling to understand the mind of God. Job went through incredible distress, and his friends were trying to figure out how this came about. And the best they could reason was he must have done something to have deserved it. 
and he keeps fending that off. No, 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 look, I'm not perfect, but I didn't do that. I didn't. I mean, they get to the point they start making up things. Like, you must have abused women, <laughs> you know, abused widows. I mean, it's, it just gets ridiculous at the end. Now, uh, Job, in one sense, is an innocent sufferer, but he gets kind of twisted in the way he starts thinking about God, too. He sometimes talks like he wants to give God advice. <laughs> and in the end, God speaks four chapters of wisdom to Job to tell him, no thank you. In fact, uh, flip back to Job 38. Job 38. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I'll instruct you, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Go ahead now. Give me that advice, Job. You tell me. Uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Who stretched out the line of it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted for joy? And on it goes. You know. Job, there are things in this world you know nothing about and you have no control over whatsoever. But I do. In the dark valleys of life and the sinkholes of life, we might question God's wisdom. We assume because we can't see into the depths, that it's just darkness and there's no plan and there's no meaning. But God's there in His wisdom. The paths of wisdom that God has set forth that He takes may not always be traceable to us, but they are always right paths. And we're called not to figure Him out, but to trust Him. God doesn't need our advice, <laughs> we need His. And his counsel to us is to trust, to rest in his inscrutable plan. There's another question that Paul asks back in Romans 11 and verse 35, or who has first given to him that which might be paid back to him again? This ties in with the depth of the riches of God, the depth of the wealth. Uh, who's going to make God wealthy? <laughs> Who's going to enrich God? Now this is a quote from the book of Job. Job 41, verse 11. I was reading from that, that context just a little while ago, so I'd like you to turn back to Job with me. It's chapter 41, and I'm not going to read all of these verses, but this is the part where in the, the latter half of chapter 40 and chapter 41, uh, God says, now, I, you know what, we've talked about creation. Let's take two big creatures that you have no control over, one called Behemoth and one called Leviathan. And there's been an age-old debate as to what exactly these animals are, whether they might have been something dinosauric or elephant-like or what have you, but the bigger point is that, particularly with Le Leviathan, this is an incredibly fierce creature that cannot be controlled by man. And verses 1 through 10 lay out, you, you can't do anything. You know, who, who would have thought about making a little Leviathan? Was, was that your idea? 
No. He doesn't answer to you. He answers to me. I made him for my purposes. This seemingly untamable, uncontrollable creature. Let's just read a few verses of chapter 41. Verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? No. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? No. Will he make any supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Oh, please, please don't hurt me. Please don't reel me in like a fish. Please. No, 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 no. No, you, you can't do anything about this thing. And right in the middle, of the verses go on about him. Right in the middle of describing this scaly beast, God interjects a reference to himself. You know, if, if Job is afraid of Leviathan, what fear must he have of Leviathan's creator? Look now at verse 11, where the Lord says, Who has given to me that I should repay him whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Leviathan is mine. I have a plan and a purpose for it. You don't understand it? That's not your <laughs> that's too bad. I have a plan and a purpose for it. You don't understand it. You need to trust me. I'm not indebted to you. It's not like uh, well God's got to tell me about this thing that I'm facing. He's got to explain it. No, no, he doesn't. Not indebted to to tell us anything. God is more untamable than even Leviathan is. He is, it's like at C.S. Lewis, the famous line in the Chronicles of Narnia, where someone asks about the lion, Aslan, is he safe? And the famous, no, he's not safe, but he's good. God cannot be controlled, but we can trust him. He is no beast like Leviathan. God is not indebted to us. Uh, It's not like we have the wealth that God needs from us, so he needs to reveal to us what he's going to do. No, it doesn't work that way. God is free. All of us are actually deeply indebted to him, very deeply. And that's what Paul is alluding to back in Romans 11 when he says, oh, the depth of the, of the wealth, how, how indebted we are to God's rich, rich mercies. We are made rich because of God's wise plan of the ages and his undeserved kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We can, when we ever come to the point in our life that thinking God owes us something, we have switched the price tags. Well, back to Romans 11, the last verse is a celebration of God's glory. A celebration of God's glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. This is called a doxology, a a word, literally a glory word, an, an eruption of praise how, how deep is God? How great is His control of history? This rich doxology tells us that He is the Lord of all. He is the glorious Creator, for from Him are all things. 
all things originated from him. It is what John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, about Jesus who worked along with the Father in the creative work. Without him was not made anything that was made. It all came from him. Now, sometimes when that statement is affirmed, there's a kind of a philosophical question that people will ask, and they say, well, what about evil? Did God make evil too? And one way to answer that would be to say, well, firstly to say no, God is not the author of evil. Uh, evil is actually what evil is in one sense is an uncreating of what God has made. It is an undoing of God's created work. Sin is the ruining of God's construction. God is the glorious, perfect creator. From him came everything. That means he has a purpose for everything. And then we see all things are through him. Means that he is the glorious sustainer. He's the one who holds everything together. It is, as the book of Colossians says about Jesus, that by him all things consist. God is not a cosmic watchmaker who got things started and then just let it run and goes away. No, no God is with the creation from the beginning to the end. All the way through, his hand is at work guiding history to its end. God sovereignly orchestrates all events of history to eventually accomplish his purposes. There is, a, there is great comfort in these words, through him are all things. We live in this period between the creation and the end of things. You know, it's going to say in a moment, to him are all things. Everything is coming back to God in some sense. We're in this through period right now. And, and many times the things that we go through seem like they're out of control and we can't figure out what's head or bottom. Or, but God is holding everything together. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you can be doubly assured that he is holding you together. You are part of his plan. And he will, he will not let you go. Great comfort in these two words. Through him are all things. To know all the events, both of the history of the world and even my own personal history, to know that they are in the hands of God, that he never ceases to sustain, that his wise mind never misses a scene, to know, that, as Paul says earlier in this same book, that God is able to work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is part of the good news of the gospel. He is the glorious sustainer. And we see also he is the glorious finisher. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him. God is the completer of all history. He has an end game for it all. And an end game for all that happens and all will finally flow back to himself. God created all things, and sin ruined seemingly everything, but God is claiming back what was lost through his long work of justice and mercy through Jesus. 
to be culminated when Jesus comes again. God is the only one who's capable of bringing all the strings back together into a meaningful whole. In ancient days, there were some people who thought like this, but not about God. In the second century, for instance, there was a Roman emperor named Marcus Aurelius, who was also a philosopher, Stoic philosopher. Listen to what Marcus Aurelius said. Now, this is a, I don't know, 50, 100 years after Paul. Oh, universe, oh, nature, from you are all things, in you are all things, unto you are all things. That this mindless, faceless nature was the source and the end of all. And it is, biblically speaking, it is utter foolishness because it elevates the creation above the creator. It's a right idea attached to utterly the wrong thing. Only God is capable of doing that. To Him are all things. We're not talking about universalism where in the end everybody will be saved and everything comes back the way it was. It's not that. It's not pantheism either. It's not that God is every single where and eventually we'll all see it. That's not it either. It's, it's about sovereignty. That God who is the source and the agent is the goal of everything. It's all coming back according to His plan. And that ought to lead us to recognize that He is the glorious wonder. The end of the verse ends with this word of, of praise, to Him be glory forever. Amen. After thinking about God's sovereignty, Paul bursts into praise. And this word of praise is used now to close off all of these long chapters of doctrine and teaching, showing us that our learning ought to lead us to worship and to adore our God for His great plan. Notice how the, the doctrines of sovereignty and election, things that have been talked about in chapters 9, 10, and 11, don't lead Paul to gloom or to fatalism, but that leads him to praise. And, and if your understanding of God's sovereignty and God's election doesn't lead you to praise, then there's something wrong in the way you're holding on to that. Now, Paul has done here speaking about God's glorious plan, and yet the chapters that follow, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, explain how we give glory to God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. How the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to the world round about us, the way we serve one another, that these are expressions of our worship to the God who is worthy of, of glory. Because worship is not just a matter of our words and what we sing and what we say, it's a matter of the way we live. And so in all things, whether they be spoken words or lived out acts, to Him, to God, be the glory forever. We, we will, I love this forever. You know, we, <laughs> some people observe church and they think, man, they just do the same thing every week. Man, they come and they sing and they, you know, over the course of the year they sing some of the same songs. And he gets up there, and those pastors get up there and they say kind of the same thing, you know, different, same song, different verse. <laughs> And like, when are they going to be done? We are never going to be done <laughs> praising God forever and ever and ever and ever. We will be captured with the glory of His greatness. 
and never, never bored in the ages to come. Paul ends it with that Hebrew word, amen. It's uh, in Hebrew, they would have said it something like amen. Which, and it means, it's a word that means something like um, it stands. It stands. Think of it this way. This is the, the Bashor paraphrase. That's the way it is, and that's the way it ought to be. That's what amen means. All glory to God forever because he's bringing about the perfect plan of the ages. That's the way it is, and that's the way it ought to be. Being lost in wonder and the greatness of God's person and his plan this purpose in Christ leads us to celebrate. Our inability to fully fathom the depths of God's mind shouldn't lead us to despair or worry or fear. It should lead us to rejoice, to know that there is an infinite God who has an infinitely good plan for the ages coming together through His Son. We've spoken mostly this morning about God's big plan for the ages, a plan that is too big for any of us to have ever devised. But your life, though it may seem small in the wide scope of this universe and in the wider scope of God's master plan for everything, your life is a part of that big plan. And God has a purpose for that too. With all of its twists and turns and its questions and its unknowns, with all of our wonderings and our worryings, God is still in control. He's sovereign over all. And if we can trust him to plan out the end, the, the ages, we can certainly trust him with the ins and outs in our lives we can't see. As I close this morning, I'm going to read a line from a hymn. It used to be quite popular, and it's sort of fallen out of use, called uh, God Works in a Mysterious Way. Uh, written by William Cowper. This is the man who wrote the the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And in this hymn, God works in a mysterious way. He says, God moves in a mysterious way His glorious wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the raging storm. Remember what Paul said about His ways are untraceable. That's what Cowper is saying. He works through things that we would not think He'd work through. And then he says, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The threatening clouds that you dread so much, you, you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in countless blessings on your head. Lord, we thank you for the good news that you are a sovereign, a one who has figured it all out, who is bringing this world and our lives to an appointed end, an end that will bring about glory for yourself and good for those who know and love you. Lord, let us be people who rejoice in your sovereignty and that you have a plan of grace through all of our troubles and uncertainties, the day-to-day questions that we have, even through our own failures, you are at work to accomplish something grand and great. May we trust you and rejoice in you and live every moment for you, giving glory to you always through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.